Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Altamash Raja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Simone Mabin. Simone is a graduate of the Air Force Academy who completed her residency training in physical medicine and rehab at Vanderbilt University. She went on to pursue fellowship training in interventional spine and musculoskeletal medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. On a personal level, Simone has a background as an athlete, a professional athlete uh, in physique competitions, so she had certainly walked the walk. As if her academic training wasn't enough, she pursued additional training simultaneously uh, during residency in health coaching and is now a board-certified health coach. In this episode, we talk a lot about how she is refining her approach to musculoskeletal care and the integral role of a physician as a coach for not only our patients, but our athletes and for the society at large. So without further ado, Dr. Simone Maben. All right, Simone, welcome. Hey, thanks guys. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, we're super excited to have you here on our inaugural podcast of Medicine Redefined. Uh, we're going to have some great conversations. Hopefully, we'll learn something. Um, so, Dr. Simone Mabin mm-hmm. is our first get and guest. And, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with you. I've known you for a little while. But um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, what you want uh, uh, our, our guests to know about you? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me. This is super exciting just to kind of chat with people like-minded, um, but a little bit different backgrounds, hoping to bring something interesting to the group here. Uh, my background um, started within the military, actually. I was in the military for a little bit after graduating from the Air Force Academy and then made a career change coming into uh, medicine and started off always interested doing something with my hands, kind of in the uh, musculoskeletal um, system, movement, functionality, mobility. And that really came from my experience as an athlete. You know, when I was in medical school, I continued to do sports and did a lot of bodybuilding competitions and, you know, kind of went to the top in that with um, my professional status and doing um, bodybuilding competitions. And it's like, why not pick a field where I can combine my passion for mobility, function, bones, joints, muscles, nerves, things I can see are wrong with the body. We all kind of have that in common, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Labs are our nemesis. But hey, we can find things wrong with the body in a world of um, PM&R, which is the residency I did. Physical medicine rehabilitation is a field where I really get to combine my passion for movement, mobility, function, and really connect that with uh, physical ailments, uh, disability, and medical diagnoses that patients have been um, hit with that are really keeping them from living their optimal life. And I love being able to combine my personal interest um, with my field. And, you know, I knew early on going into PM&R, I was either going to specialize in sports medicine or pain medicine for me. And so what it really came down to was what did I feel like my strengths in my residency were compared to where I wanted to be at? 
And my fellowship training focused more on uh, interventional spine and musculoskeletal medicine because I felt like, to be honest, my sports training was very strong in my residency. I did a lot of sideline medicine. I did a lot of athlete management. And I knew I was going to be confident using those skills in my clinical practice. You go to fellowship to really hone in on things you can't do. And guess what I couldn't do as a resident? Put needles in people's spines safely, you know, without <laughs> advanced training. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. That's yeah. what I'm going to do. And so now here I am finishing my fellowship um, at Johns Hopkins um, just this past um, summer. And this is my first job here. I'm down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, working in a hospital-based practice and I'm bringing um, pain management and interventional spine for the first time to this hospital system and in this area. And I'm super excited to kind of set that, uh, set that pathway for what does pain management look like in our hospital system. Um, it's a heavy weight in the shoulders, but um, you know, from my past history, it's not, you know, just a challenge isn't something I want to run away from. So this seemed like something that was perfect for me. So here I am, my first job. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. You know, and, and that's crazy. Cause you know, I felt like I, uh, we got to know each other a little bit, obviously, you know, we met uh, when I'm still training in my residency, uh, like you said, in PM&R as well. And, and you were doing fellowship last year and uh, you know, we, we yeah. talked quite a bit, but I didn't, I didn't know that part about you, like your whole journey. And not until I listened mm-hmm. to one of, one of your podcasts as well. And uh, you know, what the thing yeah. that really stood out to me, I thought it was cool. You know, that you had, like you mentioned, you had such a strong foundation from your own personal background, being an athlete, and then the sideline coverage in sports. And I think as often Mm -hmm. we as individuals, we tend to gravitate towards what we know, what we like, right? Um, I mean, that's the case for me, right? I'm doing sports because I've always wanted Mm -hmm. to do sports. I'm like, nah, this this is what I like. And I think that's, that's a very natural thing to do. And you were like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go out because I want to be extremely comprehensive so I can do everything and I can truly mm-hmm. help the individual. But the, the one thing that really stood out to me is like your unique journey of going from ACGME pain, kind of like diving into head first mm-hmm. and then ending up at Hopkins, mm-hmm. which I believe you mentioned that when you were a 12 year old girl, you, you mm-hmm. kind of wanted to be affiliated with it. Could you talk about that? Like, like, you know, coming in whole, mm-hmm. like full circle for you? Yeah. Yeah, man. That's such a really personal story. And I did, I, I uh, highlighted that and went, my most recent podcast because it really um, became, uh, it really kind of came full circle for me when I ended up coming into Hop- coming to Hopkins in 2019. And what happened with that story is my dad used to have us read these uh, these books about excellent people growing up. Yeah, I grew up in a strict family, you know, and so I read all these autobiographies. And one of them I read was um, Ben Carson, Gifted Hands. And- and it was all about how do you become a surgeon from essentially nothing. And um, I was really inspired by that story. And I said, man, I am going to be a neurosurgeon and I'm going to go to Johns Hopkins and I'm going to do the, you know, it's it kind of insane. And um, so I had to set my sights high for this Johns Hopkins or equivalent environment um, throughout my training. And so um, yeah, I, d- I definitely had a few setbacks here and there, but I think I had some excellent opportunities to train, to train at excellent um, institutions. And, you know, I went to my med school here in um, Charleston, South Carolina, med- Medical University of South Carolina, and then Vanderbilt for my residency, which is fantastic. And as I applied 
to do ACGME pain thinking, all right, this next step is going to be something that opens me up to be this board certified pain physician. Cause that's what everybody told me made me excellent. You know, I had, I need to have these labels and I needed to have these credentials. Well, you know, you start to meet mentors along the way through your training that open your eyes up to what perspective is in terms of credentialing for training. And I'm not here to put down one program or another. I'm just here to highlight what uh, other people have told me. And, you know, what we do know is that different training environments highlight strengths of certain uh, physicians. And if you do ACGB pain, you're going to be very good at a certain set of skills. If you do different, very strong spine programs, you're going to be strong at a different set of skills. I would argue if you did internal medicine at different hospitals, you're going to have weaker and, you know, weak weaknesses and strengths anywhere you go. Well, you know, the ACG me uh, application process, as you know, is so long and extensive, you're really forced to apply for things earlier than you're really prepared for in, for pe those people that are still making decisions between one thing or another. If you're like you, Altamesh, you come in, you're like, I'm doing sports, there's no question. Obviously, I'm doing ACGME sports, there's nothing else. There's not really a lot of like decision-making to be made, but I think there's a lot of trainees that come in, whether it be the medical school um, level, the residency level, the fellowship level, where we're really being asked year after year to make decisions sooner than we're exposed to those areas of practice. And that's a lot of pressure on students. And I'm not sure how, you know, maybe it's a bigger discussion than what we're ready for tonight. I don't think it's really relevant, but you know, we need, maybe need to restructure kind of the way that we're looking at training if we're forcing people to kind of make decisions before they're ready. But essentially that's what happened to me. You know, I was forced to make a decision to look at ACGME pain essentially before I had actually even rotated into my pain rotations, before I had done um, some really critical elements of, of training. So I, here I am applied for pain in the back of my head, wishing I had applied for spine, you know, six months into the process. And the, the long story short, because it's a whole freaking podcast, <laughs> is that essentially, <laughs> essentially, I ended up not matching into my pain program. And I'm in the middle of doing an EMG, I get calls, they're like, hey, by the way, do you want to come to the University of Michigan? I'm like, did I even apply to the University of Michigan? What is happening right now? You know, I've never not matched before. So you don't know that that's what happens. Essentially, these schools are calling people that didn't get a slot. Well, that was somebody offering me a job. So I dumbly ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I, I, I'm in the middle of EMG, like I'll call you back. Like, so anyway, I accidentally turned down a job. That job was probably gone within 30 seconds of me hanging up. And then, gosh, I call my mentor. I start gathering a plan. I meet with my chairman um, at Vanderbilt. We come up with a plan and essentially, I mean, within 48 hours, I had reached out to Johns Hopkins, a program that I loved when I was um, doing the, uh, I believe it was AAP conference in Atlanta. And I met them there and I was like, man, this is really good. So I go in my folder and I see it's a good program. I, I send an email out. The program director gets back to me. Oh yeah, fantastic. Do you want to do an, an interview in the next couple of days? Sure. Well, hey, do you want the position? I'm like, what? What? Am I going to free?
freaking Johns Hopkins? Like after, you know, after like freaking thought I failed, you can imagine, like I was, you know, pretty shocked after this non-match situation. And then it turned around completely. And here I am back where I envisioned myself, albeit not a neurosurgeon with a way better lifestyle, no offense to neurosurgeons listening, but (laughs) (laughs) doing what I love. I'm with you. after, (laughs) After the journey, doing what I love and at Johns Hopkins and, you know, practicing, you know, what I, I thought I'd love to go through eventually. And so it's, it's amazing. You know, we always, we all have these stories where we fail to just end up in a better place. And I truly believe that's happened many times in my life. And this is just one example. Absolutely. Simone. And I, I, I love that story because it shows so much grit that you had, right? Something that you're not expecting mm-hmm. but then something that you have to go through and then still mm-hmm. making the best outcome out of it. Right. And mm-hmm. I kind of want to go down that path actually. And, you know, for, for okay. me, actually, I relate because I wanted to be a brain surgeon at the age of five, only because I could spell neuro- neurosurgery properly. I knew, the, <laughs> I, knew the, I knew the E came before the U, and I was like, yes, I got this. Yes. <laughs> and, two, and it's funny because you talk about having you know, not enough exposure to fields, right? And mm-hmm. I actually wanted, wanted to do GI before I got into PM&R. And I got mm-hmm. lucky into PM&R because an OB-GYN resident said, oh, you're into like, alternative medicine stuff. Why haven't mm-hmm. you thought of PM&R? And I said, why haven't I thought of PM&R, right? And it's something that a lot of med schools, you know, don't teach and we don't have much exposure to. So what was the conversation in your head um, Mm -hmm. as you kind of chose PM&R residency and then even that after that when you're thinking about fellowship? Gosh, that's such a big open question. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I mean, I have so many answers for it and I'm trying not just not to be so, um, let me narrow it a little bit. I think really... I went into med school, you know, first thinking neurosurgery, and then I quickly thought orthopedic surgery after the neurosurgeons I were exposed to just weren't very happy. I know that that's just location dependent. And so I was like, okay, orthopedic surgery just makes sense. Like everybody says that makes sense based on my background. Well, within orthopedic surgery, you end up meeting physiatrists. And I started doing rotations where I met PM&R doctors. So I did, you know how between your first and second year, you do that research thing or, or whatever to boost your application. So I'm at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, um, there to do orthopedic surgery with the best women's sports medicine doctors in the world. And they introduced me to the physiatrist there. She's like, oh, well, this is Jen Solomon. You know, she does, you know, our PM&R back pain stuff. And I'm like, what? Like, all right, well, that sounds interesting. But I mean, anyways, back to the surgery, back to the OR. And so I kind of poo-pooed it at the time, but then as I got exposed to it more and more that summer, I started to realize how she really added to the team in that women's sports medicine clinic. You know, it was one of those fantastic clinics we all dream of where you have uh, your surgeons, your uh, women's sports family doctors, your nutritionist, your uh, psychologist, uh, physiatrist. It was fantastic. And what I really saw in that environment was this opportunity to combine different people from all backgrounds that all cared about um, athletes' performance and functionality. And we had people that are very high level. Some of the top athletes, you know, professional athletes are covered by them, the American Ballet, New York Giants. And then we had people that just live in Upper East Side, New York, that just need to see physicians. And they got such great comprehensive treatment. 
So I walked away from that opportunity realizing that there was more than one way to treat people with, first of all, back to the thing we all like, us, the three of us, problems we can see, problems mm -hmm. that are physically wrong with the patient. It's not a lab. And I was like, look, in physiatry, you can see all these problems with these patients. And as time went, I did more weight rotations. I got exposed to more physiatry after that first summer. And I started to realize there was this ability to combine a little bit more balanced lifestyle with a, a selected field of medicine. So I think there are orthopedic surgeons that have a decent, a decent balanced lifestyle. I think there are more physiatrists that have balanced lifestyles. And I said, man, there's a way that I can do some hands-on medicine and still engage in these other things that I really like to do in my spare time. And I do have a lot of things I like to do that are kind of all about wellness and health. And I thought PM&R allowed me to continue to do a lot of my own interest um, but then actually use those skills I'm learning and like implement it more in that PM&R clinical environment. I think orthopedic surgeons definitely have a very important role um, in our healthcare system and when they're seeing um, injury patients, but I don't know that it would be uh, accepted in their setting to, you know, you're seeing 40 to 45, 45 patients a day, some of them, sometimes even more. I, I don't think they really are set up to allow them to Go, go there like I do sometimes as a physiatrist um, when I'm implementing some behavior modification suggestions and things like that. It just feels more natural. And so I gravitated to that more and more and more. And I think now, um, man, I, I'm so happy. I mean, I work next to orthopedic surgeons every day and we see a lot of the same things. It's just the way I'm approaching that same severe degenerative osteo knee or that degenerative spine it's just different than the way they look at it. Just, I mean, our jobs are just a little bit different. There's nothing good or bad about it. It's just different. And it just happens yeah. that my field, I get to talk about some of the other things I just happen to already enjoy and love about function, return to, um, returning to their sport, if it's a sport, returning to the level of function that they were at previous to injury or debilitation, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's so freaking cool. Uh, I mean, you know, I think it, it, it wouldn't be an understatement to say that your journey from professional athlete to, to trainer, to physician, you know, being a physiatrist, then interventional spine and, and musculoskeletal specialist, and, and now a health coach. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, mm -hmm. and I know you feel pretty strongly yeah, about getting that credibility and getting the certifications. I know you recently, like you were studying for the, the health coaching boards. Mm -hmm. like you talked about this course that you took at, at Vanderbilt, a great opportunity that came up, but yeah. you know, being a physician, because this is, this is a struggle that I personally had too, right? I think both of us have a certification at our parent academy as NSCA. Um, and we've kept up with that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I, I remember a lot of like yep. thinking, Hey, do I need to, every, every year? Actually, my, my CSCS is ending in next month and I'm, I'm debating again, do I need to keep it? I'm going to keep it because it's so much easier, <laughs> but, um, it I is, appreciate yeah. the value of it. You appreciate the value of it. But at the same time, being a physician technically, yeah. you know, by all legalities, you're, you're able to, to do the nutritional counseling. You're able to do all those things, the exercise coaching and all that stuff. Now, whether, whether you're actually truly qualified is, a, is a, a thing that you and I know, but for our <laughs> listeners, 
Yeah, yeah. For our listeners, like, yeah. why, why did you continue pursuing this health coaching thing? Now, what value does it add to your practice? And, and why are you so passionate about that? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. So I started off with the NSCA CPT um, certified personal training certification. I got that in 2006, thinking, well, I'm already really interested in creating my own meal plans and creating exercise plans. And I do a few for other people, similar to probably how a lot of us start. And then you go and decide to become legit, if you will. And so I did that. And for a couple of years, I started doing, oh, I worked at Gold's Gym. So I worked for a big box and that went semi-okay because I realized then you had to be a salesperson and sales personal training. I was like, ah, oh, dude, I'm so not a convincer. I'm, I'm just, it's not my personality. I would suck at sales if that was something that made a living for me. I'm just like a, you need to want it and then I'll work with, I'll, you got to meet me halfway kind of thing, especially when it comes to health. I'm so anti, let me convince you why now you suddenly want to lose weight. Like we all know that's not real. Well, so even back then, I think I had keyed in to what I know now on a more practical level, which is you will never convince a person to want to fix something more than they want to fix it themselves. And I really had conflict with the fact of having a personal training certification that focused a lot of on the, uh, what I consider the basic fundamental foundational skills you definitely have to have to help people safely in their, within their different confines and constructs, whether it be medical limitations, physical limitations, and whether they have sports specific goals. However, as I analyzed the way my clients did over the years, I looked at the dropout rates and the follow through rates and why they did or did not achieve their goals. And a lot of it had to do with, because the reason I was treating personal training was I was prescribing. I was prescribing personal training, just like you prescribe a hypertension medication or anti-inflammatory medication. Here, take this one time a day. Here, take this twice a day. Here, follow this workout regimen, follow this diet. Uh, come see me in four to six weeks and let's see how you're doing. What happens? I mean, you guys all know the answer. People fall off. They, they fall off if you're just prescribing without following through. And when I heard about this health coaching concept, I realized health coaching, which I hate that term. I've, I've brainstormed 9 million other terms we can use so people actually know what the heck it is because I'm not, it's not a life coach. It's nothing. So health coaching, what it is, is it's um, helping people reach their health specific goals by guiding them using their own values and their own strengths and the client guides the progress and guides the action steps there's literally no direction so doctors need the most training to become a good health coach because it's not prescribing you're working within the confines the construct and the limitations of the client and it's all behavior driven. So the goals that you create are not, I want to lose 20 pounds. It's, I want to be um, active 150 minutes per week consistently throughout the year. I want to be meal prepping, you know, for three meals consistently, um, blah, blah, blah. Like it's, they're focused on behavior modifications because when you do the research, we have found that patients or clients uh, tend to have long-term results when their goals are behavior focused rather than just outcome focused. Oh, right. And so what I realized is that 
the way that I was targeting my clients all these years wasn't wrong. I was doing what my skill set allowed me to. And I, I, mean, I believe we all grow over time. Um, I'm sure in 20 years, I'll be thinking something I'm doing right now was horrible, you know? <laughs> and I think what I realized is that I just needed, I was interested in doing more. I was interested in figuring out the why for my clients and hoping to get down to what is it? Like, why is it that you don't want to change yet? Or maybe you're trying to do what Simone or Altamash do every day, but maybe you haven't figured out that your real issue is something completely different. What you do as a health coach is you help them to discover what their true barriers are. So sometimes working out three times a week consistently isn't that they don't have the motivation to work out consistently. When you really peel back the onion, which takes a long time, um, and by the way, all the tools we use are evidence-based science. All, everything we implement is evidence-based. Nothing is cuckoo weird stuff. So when we're, we peel back the onion and we realize what is holding patients back, I mean, it is mind-blowing sometimes to see that they're like, oh, I didn't realize that it really goes back to the fact that I don't have confidence in blah, blah, blah. I don't have my support. My environment isn't um, comfortable and supportive or my sleep cycle actually is so off. There's no way I'm ever going to get up. So what we do is we work on what the real issues are. Half the time, most clients don't know what their issue is. And so they tar start working with the health coach. They just know they're not where they want to be. Um, and so now my desire is to work more within the construct of helping people realize um, what is it that's keeping them from being where they want to be and then how do I safely help them without directing them? Because I know that that's not going to work long-term. Right. So Samo, you are the only health coach that I know, right? That is a physician, which means 99% okay. of physicians don't have this kind of certification. And obviously all three of us going through medical training, you know, yeah. we, we don't, we don't learn this in med school. Right. So mm -hmm. what is the role of the primary care physician when it comes to this health coaching kind of stuff, right? Like yeah. how does a patient go about it? Do they ask their primary care doctor? Mm -hmm. And if so, what does the PCP do or should they be sending them yeah. to somebody else? Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a really It's a real challenge, you know, and there's a lot of papers I was, you know, as I went through my course where we're learning, you know, what is the best way to connect people with these health coaches? Number one is it kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think of, oh God, PM&R. Um, it's a great example. PMR, what we do. Nobody knows what the heck we do in some environments. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I mean, especially if you're talking with major academic centers, they kind of know, but even the people that consult us, you guys have seen this consults. It's yeah. like, uh, all right, guy, come on. You know? So anyway, yeah. half of it's education and marketing. And so half of it is, I would say majority of it for health coaching, since you know, nobody even knows what that term is, is there, if there's a health coach in that environment, we need to make sure that they know about it. The PCP needs to be just like they marketed me when I arrived. Hey, there's this new pain physician. By the way, this is what she does. Um, and I think the same thing exists for health coaches is as when they arrive, there needs to this mar be this marketing to primary cares and in a quick educational form that says, hey, this is what the health coach can do for you. This is how you contact me. This is how my referral um, process works. And then, you know, reach out to me, any questions, concerns, da, 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 da. So it's a lot of groundwork, but that will exist as most people find in private practice for any field that you're in. I mean, people that we know what they do, orthopedic surgery, you got to do some legwork to get out there. Um, once PCPs know what exists and what they do, I don't know it's, that it's super important that they know the intricacies, but knowing what problems they treat, obesity, smoking cessation, 
for our surgeons, it's getting the patients, you know, op ready because to the, all these limiting factors like elevated BMI, diabetes management, medication compliance. Um, you know, there's some deeper stuff you can get into with more elevated clients that are kind of have a good baseline health. But I think once you have that uh, awareness available, then what the PCP does is I, you know, some papers I've read about something I'm trying to do here is you really run parallel clinics. So what it looks like is Altamesh comes in for his PCP's visit. Hey, Altamesh, your diabetes continues to remain out of control. How dare you? A1C is, you know, a 10, <laughs> even though Ultimate should never have an A1C that was out of control. But we're not gonna we're not gonna use any other patients' names here. So let's say that's the issue. Well, you know what? Hey, you know, um, I do have uh, a sweet tooth. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we can't deny that. But you know, in that in that moment, you'd say, Altimesh, you know, this is kind of, we've kind of been struggling with this. You know, your sweet tooth is getting a little out of control here. We're gonna need you to go talk to Becky. She's our health coach. She's you know working down the hallway. How do you feel about just talking to her real quick? Just doing a quick you know introduction, quick intake. He's like, I don't know about this, but I mean, I'll give it a try. You walk in, Becky does all the work. Becky does the introduction. This is what health coaching is. This is what I can do for you. This is what okay. the con the construct would look like. This is what a contract is like. What do you? Oh man, I didn't realize it, but everything you're telling me, I think would really be beneficial. Maybe that. Maybe we should try this. Let me. Maybe I should come back and visit you a couple times and just see how things go. That um, health coach then can provide, as long as obviously there's um, patient approval, pro provide reports and feedback to the PCP. Hey, I saw Altamish for 12 sessions for the last three months. This is the progress we made with his behavior modifications. And then there's a medical way that's probably too much detail for this. There's a medical way that we can bill for that. Um, which, as you know, these days with special services like this, it's all about how do we bill for it? How do we get paid for it? If you can't get paid for these things, that is what's making it difficult for physicians and other providers to offer that in the clinic. And so that's what I've spent a lot of time doing here in this setting is figuring out, because you know I'm going to bring a health coach in. How am I going to bring, because I, I can't do it. I got to see all these complicated spine patients, which I'm very excited to do. But I need to have a health coach here and I need to figure out how my hospital can get compensated for it. Cause at the end of the day, we all want to take care of patients, but at the end of the day, it's a business. And so you got to figure out how do you get the hospital reimbursed for this? And so there's, there's ways you do it and it's um, not a big deal, but it's going to be easier than some of the things all of us kind of talk about, which is like, Hey, can you just sit in the clinic and talk about nutrition for 30 minutes? Uh, if you refer to registered dietitian and the insurance covers it, right? It's, yeah. so it's, 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 it's limiting. There's barriers, but we're finding workarounds because we're finding more data, which is what it always comes down to. You're finding more data and positive outcomes with health coaching. You present that. And then that's when we're having the ability to um, get compensated for it in a hospital or clinical setting. I see. Yeah. That's like, that's right right up my alley, right? So like I was looking into getting like functional medicine certified, but unfortunately you have to wait till after residency, you know, to have a license uh, and then go through it. So how does someone get into health coaching? Do you have to yeah. have a residency? Like, do you have to complete residency or is it something that me as an intern could get into? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's nice um, because it, they do require some medical background. So unlike my personal training certification, anyone can go read and apply for your personal training certification. To be a health coach, you do have to have some exposure to medical training. And so typically these people will have um, an RN degree or therapy degree 
or MD or DO degree. Um, every once in a while, you'll have people that meet qualifications due to a ton of hands-on patient time without having a degree. There's special exceptions I've seen for certain programs. But for the most part, you just have to have an, an advanced degree in being some type of provider. And the reason being is that if doctors are sending you those patients, you need to be familiar like, oh, elevated cholesterol could have this impact on the patient. Or, oh, the A1C means XYZ. That's a long-term number, not a short-term number. So that you do need to have some background, but the variety that you bring to the table is actually very good because what I found even in my training group is that each health coach brings to the table whatever their background is to that relationship with the client. And it tends to evolve in a way that's just so special depending on the person. So all three of us may have a different experience depending on the coach and their background. So they're qualified, but like I trained with some people that had a little bit more, uh, one girl had a master's of holistic medicine and astrology and believed in a lot of things. And I'm just like, I don't know anything about that, but I got this nutrition stuff down packed, you know, like mm -hmm. I got this exercise stuff down packed. And so maybe I was pushing more forward with when it was appropriate, um, answering those very technical health related questions. Whereas maybe she wouldn't be, um, as in detail with the exercise details and the nutrition details. Again, you need to know some, but you're really just trying to keep the patient safe since a lot of the patient goals are self-directed. And so after you have this, you know, baseline training level, what they look for really is going through this comprehensive program where you're doing a lot of um, not only understanding of the basic principles and the evidence behind the techniques that we use to communicate with the patients. It's a lot of positive psychology, um, uh, listening and reflection skills, all these things that probably psychologists kind of learn about. And then techniques to look for when you're hearing patients go a direct, certain direction, what tools to use to guide or uh, realign things, how to keep us on track um, when they're maybe off of where they need to. There's a, there's a lot. There's a lot. So learning the, learning the techniques are important, but then what happens is you start to integrate a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one time and practicing skills. After you finish that formal education, then comes the time that you actually need to, at Vanderbilt, it's uh, 70 sessions, not 70 hours, but 70 sessions. Wow. That's important because sometimes the sessions can be longer than hours. So it, it feels like a million hours. So mm -hmm. 70 sessions and you document those. You submit all of this now. You submit your graduate certificate. Okay, wait, let's pause. So if you see all those patients and you complete all your sessions, you completed all the academia, all this stuff probably takes two years. It's, okay. It should really just be a master's degree. Wow. After you complete all that, you submit it and Vanderbilt says, okay, you have your health coaching certificate. Are you kidding me? I'm a doctor. I don't want a certificate. I was like, oh, uh -uh. I'm not just getting a certificate. I was like, no, there's boards. And I was like, yes, boards mean something to doctors. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. if there's a board I can sit for, that's legit. So you take all that certificate, you take the hours, you take all this documentation you submit that to the National Health and Wellness Consortium. I'm, I'm screwing it up. But you submit all this documentation to them. They allow you to sit for the board, similar to finishing your AC, ACGME residency stuff. 
and then you can sit for that and become board certified. So you, you, that's a choice. Most doctors that took the course with me, which ha by the way, they, both of them happen to be pain physicians. That's, I don't know if that's, I don't think <laughs> yeah. that's a coincidence. <laughs> but, and so it's, it's interesting. You can really go as far as you want to with it. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people that do the program and just get the certificate and they're full-time health coaches. Uh, there's people at Vanderbilt right now that health coach for a living at, in the integrative um, health center. That's super legit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's freaking awesome. I mean, you know, I, like you said, I think for me, being involved in this is such an early on, obviously, I, and, and Tarsh is the same way, all three of us, we have a lot of passion. And it's so easy when you're so passionate about this to kind of mm -hmm. be sitting in how our, our medical culture is defined now and, and have those barriers where you just kind of, again, feel like, you know, you're, 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 it's hopeless and, and you're not going to be able to do the things you want to do, whether it's because the patients aren't buying into it, the system's not created that way to practice. But what I've noticed is that change is coming. It's happening. Um, and, and the ones mm -hmm. who are, 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 you know, not ready for it, they're taking matters into their own hand and kind of setting their own standard for excellence. Clearly you've done that with the, uh, with the coaching, you know, uh, health coaching boards that you've taken. I remember, um, reading about pretty, pretty recently, the NSCA actually announced, I don't know if you know this, that at least for the CSCS before it yeah. was, you needed to have a, a bachelor's degree, but now, well, not now, excuse me, 10 years from now, cause change is slow. Uh, 2030, <laughs> you need to have a strength and conditioning related field, but also the, the college needs to be like uh, approved by the NSCA. So that's, oh, again, wow. I think these things are, I mean, they, unfortunately this takes time, but, um, but, but let's yeah, shift gears a little bit, right? Uh, obviously the most important okay. thing I think we, we've talked about, um, it, it's the whole behavioral change because if people aren't going to buy into it, it doesn't matter what we do, but but I, I want to, because I know you're passionate about functional training, right? At least the concept of functional training. Yeah. And it's super popular now, yeah. right? Particularly with, we've mm -hmm. had issue like, you know, since CrossFit came on big and you've had Orange Theory, you've got all these different places and they've got good, they've got bad. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I want you to tell us like, and, and maybe some of the listeners, first of all, like what is functional training? Why is it important? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like, yeah, I, I really, could you define it for us and tell us? Cause like the other day I was watching some, something maybe on Instagram or something. And, and I saw a person doing, um, curls on a BOSU ball in the gym. And is that functional training? Is that, is that what, what that is? <laughs> if they're a tight rope walker, I would <laughs> say possibly, I mean, if you work in the circus, which I think actually helps us kind of go into the definition and I mean, I ask for your, your inputs too, because I don't know that I'm an expert on the definition, but I'll say my interpretation, which is I think uh, functional training is that you're doing specific actions or movements that are actually helping you to employ something specific within your daily um, routine or daily function or daily sport. And so if the movement you're doing is supportive of something specific, I think that tends to be more functional. I think if you can take the if your body is learning something from those movements or gaining something from a strength perspective, flexibility, whatever, all the aspects of fitness and health, I think that's when we could say, okay, that specifically is translating into an activity that that person wants to do. I think a lot of times what we see, like you're talking about, is people are picking activities to do that I don't know that it specifically is helping them reach a specific goal. And I mean, maybe that's not their, their fault for not knowing that, 
Um, I mean, we all know half the time it isn't their fault that they just don't know that that is not helpful. But I would argue, this is kind of why, I mean, I don't know how much, you guys know how much I have, I don't know if it's clear how much I hate CrossFit, so we'll just make that clear. So- I do too, you know, I, it's okay. Right, so I, I'm, just, I'm not a big fan of CrossFit. And so, like I talk about that on my podcast, and so I think, I, you know, when I hear about things that I don't like, I always step back for a second and say, recognize the situation we're in where people don't move enough. You know, and I said, just recognize where we are right now that I'd rather that person be standing on a BOSA ball and doing whatever they think is going to help because, heck, they're working on some stability. They're not sitting on the couch. So in one, on one hand, I want to knock them, you know, because I'm like, man, it's so unspecific and, help, and not helpful. But I think I should really only be doing that for people that are a little bit more fitness savvy, you know, like maybe Ultimash. I'd be like, so what, what the heck is that for? Well, you're going to work out almost every day. So like me also, coming at you, you is a little bit me? different. You got two people here. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know you better. So like, we'll just start I'm legit. with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy does nothing wrong. <laughs> I feel, I feel like, I feel like since I know you, I'm like, oh, you want to take it as personal. You can pick on me too. <laughs> okay, okay. So back to all the functional stuff you do wrong in the gym, you know, but I, I really think, um, it's a fine line, right? Like we want people to do more and just get out there. And if they're following that random workout on Instagram because they're, you know, their little idol posted it. I don't know. <laughs> there's a balance. I mean, there's a balance, like maybe go for it um, rather than not do it at all. But for the, your more advanced athletes or let's say um, moderate to advanced athletes, that's when maybe I might start getting a little picky and pushing on them to kind of question, why are you doing what you're doing? So I'm, I'm, I'm hundred percent with you on that, right? Like I think movement is better than no movement, but you know, you being a pain doctor, mm -hmm. at what point are you going to say, Hey, mm -hmm. maybe this isn't the best thing you should start out with, right? Like you like not to start out with CrossFit, like at what threshold have you seen with your patients where you're like, you should not be doing this because this is painful. First of all, the question is at what point have I met a patient doing too much exercise? Let's just like yeah. step back. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that is almost never the situation like I sure sure <laughs> it's all it's always like so when's the last time you walked well I walked to the fridge okay come on like <laughs> I you know it's so I'm just not seeing that 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 very often in my clinical settings um whether it be here or up in Baltimore I wasn't seeing the issue of having people do incorrect exercise See. um maybe my sports counterparts are maybe other clinics are but the most common issue I have is lack of inactivity. Um, and maybe a handful times a year, I'll see a guy, a girl, that's maybe trying to push it and do a bunch of weird stuff that I think they're causing more damage than not. And usually in those situations, almost always, it's a guy that used to be a really great athlete uh, in high school, college, and then gained some weight and kind of hasn't grasped of the fact that he's not as athletic as he used to be. And now he's in the gym doing a bunch of stuff when his basic agility, endurance, foundational stuff isn't even in play anymore. He's like, oh, I'm going to go do all this crazy stuff. I'm like, you can't even touch your knees, much less like you're trying to squat right now. Bro, like let's take a couple steps back. It's usually that kind of situation. It's not mm -hmm. usually a chronic pain patient. Usually it's just a guy I'm seeing that has kind of a focal injury, kind of a more, more sports injuries when I'm seeing, because that's how you hurt yourself, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. 
people out of shape doing stuff they're just not supposed to do. Right. Yeah. And you know, speaking on, on those injuries and another like issue that I have, obviously something that plagues the whole country is musculoskeletal related pathology, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, that's now the number one reason why people go to the doctor, right? It historically used to be upper respiratory infections, but now it's back pain, probably pretty closely followed Mm -hmm. by shoulder pain and Mm -hmm. then maybe URIs. But, you know, Mm -hmm. so obviously like acute classic fractures tears, like we know that you know, they need to be treated, treated appropriately and, and pain in that regard is mm-hmm. you, you can take care of that. You fix the issue, go for it. But we know that pain's really complicated. But for, for so many doctors, I come across so many physicians who are still stuck on this pathoanatomic model. I'm seeing more and more mm-hmm. people talk about this biopsychosocial model for pain. When I'm talking more like chronic dysfunction, a lot of the folks that you see who aren't mm-hmm. moving because of inactivity, that kind of stuff. Uh, but there's still so many mm-hmm. people who just, they want to get the image, they want to get the MRI, they want to see what's wrong over there. Let me give you a quick example, right? Last week I did an interview and I was okay. talking to the chair of orthopedics at a large academic institution in the Northeast. And he, he, had, he was mm-hmm. talking about his posterior shoulder pain. Um, and he, he's had a, a diagnostic ultrasound scan and he knows he has a significant rotator cuff tear. He's got a supraspinatus tear, which is if, you know, supraspinatus for my med folks, again, we know that it's the kind of the muscle above the, uh, the, uh, you know, spine of the scapula kind of helps the arm lift up. Right. And stabilizes the, the, the humerus or, you know, arm bone. Now his pain was more so on the posterior aspect on the back of the shoulder. That's not typically where the supraspinatus is. And that's not, sometimes it can present like that, but he was convinced, he was convinced that he needed an MRI. Mind you, he's still benching, right? He's still benching. And he's like, yeah, when I bench, it's fine. But after I bench, it hurts. And when I sleep at night, it hurts. But he's like, but I think the pain's back here. It's not classically supraspinatus. So I need an MRI. I was like, Bro, like, so I was like, hey, maybe just do some direct cuff. You know, it, it was fine. It was an interview, like, whatever. It was 15 minutes. But this was, this was a surgeon? Yeah, the chair of orthopedics. Um, and so, but oh, other, otherwise, okay. a great guy. I mean, he, you know, he, he did read some longevity stuff, David Sinclair. So we talked about that. That was cool. But, um, but, but okay. what I, what I want to ask you is, like, why do you think there's such a strong emphasis yeah. on the pathoanatomic model still? Like, why are we so hung up on, you know, if this hurts, then we got to get the imaging. We got to figure out like what's wrong. Like, you know, when we know that it's much more complicated mm. than that. Mm, gosh, that's such a great question. I don't know that I have the direct answer to that. I think I, as I'm reflecting, I'm thinking about the patients one after another. I've said that is like, yeah, but why does it hurt? Yeah, but why does it hurt? And so I know the answer. I know how I manage it, like manage that expectation. But in terms of why they want to, See that I think um, I think patients don't know what they don't know. I don't, can't speak for educated people that have you know degrees and you know in joints, but you know for p- patients that do that education, they something hurts, and with describe an X-ray, and you're like, well, you know, all I can see on the X-ray is the bones you know if i really want to evaluate the spinal cord and the spinal nerves and the muscles i'm gonna have to get an mri why did you just say that you just told patients something that us is so simple we know you can't see anything but bones on the x-ray but you just said that because you obviously don't think the patient can see that stuff on you don't think they know that so if the patient doesn't know they can't see on that on the x-ray then how in the world are they going to know that you can't see pain 
There's no way. Or you can't, you can't get an MRI and just see that that nerve, when you say that the sciatic nerves, nerve is painful because of the inflammation, you know, you use, you know, I might use the word like inflammation cascade. We got to shut down the cascade, right? These are kind of some of the things I use. Um, well, can we just see the inflammation with the MRI? Ugh, dang it. No, we can't. But I can tell you ways that the body can feel inflammation. I can tell you the ways that the body senses inflammation. But I think, honestly, I think it's a, my opinion is that in the majority of situations, it's the lack of understanding and education that they just feel that if there's pain there, you must be able to see it. You must be able to see it. Like it must be physically visible why there's scapular dyskinesis, which is a perfect example of something you absolutely cannot find on any imaging, right? But everybody has it. And so it's like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to change that expectation before they get to my clinic. I think the best thing you can do from there, and honestly, probably the best people that do it is probably, I can't imagine anyone does it better than PM&R, is you start describing biomechanics, you start describing the stabilizers and, you know, um, oh, well, you know, you've been walking this way for so long and now you have the IT band rubbing up the bursa, so now that's inflamed. And so because you've been doing that, now this is weak. And now going down to this knee, that's turning. Oh, okay. If you get models out and you start showing them, people do understand. You know, it, it's a matter of talking about biomechanics and using words like walking funny and using words like, well, now that's all irritated. When you start using simple jargon and showing them examples with models, I think that connects for them that, the pain that they're having is more of a sensation and a symptom of their function more so than it is a physiological um, focal point that we can identify in MRI. And so we can't change that people want to see that, but what we, we can change is the way that we manage um, that expectation and make them feel more comfortable with our ability to kind of target their symptoms. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. All about education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and speaking of education, right, and us as PM&R doctors talking about pain, teaching our patients, but not only teaching, but also preaching, living a healthy lifestyle, right? And I think I was listening to one of your podcasts where you said, correct me if I'm wrong, 23% of physicians are obese. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's higher now, right? <laughs> it's just gets sure. higher so, every year. You're right, Especially with right. COVID. Oh, yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so what is your solution to that if you do have one, right? Like how do we as physicians walk the walk as you would say in your podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I struggle with that answer because one of the things I always humble myself to my patients is always say this is like, hey, I'm just like a cut of society, you know, like physicians are, mm -hmm. this is just a job, you know, just right. like the, the banker has a job, just like um, your car, the mechanic has a job. Like we're, this is just our job. We still have all of our, of our own individual habits we grew up with. A lot of us may have not come from the same, you know, the socioeconomic, mm -hmm. socioeconomic issues that exist for a lot of the people affected by obesity epidemic that exists for doctors as well. Mm -hmm. um, access, you know, we have going through training like you are now is one of the most stressful times in our life. We probably take worse oh, yeah. care of ourselves than those people that, you know, we're, they're sitting in our clinics, you know, Absolutely. and we're like, yeah. you need to do this. You need to drink water. And when's the last time we drank water? 16 hours ago, you know? Right. And so I don't know that, you know, my main point when bringing up that statistic isn't so much that doctors need to do better um, 
so much better than everyone else. I think we need to do better just like everyone else needs to do better. Mm. You know, so just like the mechanic needs to do better, just like um, everyone else in our society needs to kind of rise to the occasion. I feel like we also tend to have more of the resources at our fingertips. So it's a little less, um, less of an excuse. But given that the percentages mm -hmm. are so low too, compared to what is it, 60%, you know, all, all comers. So, you know, 23 versus 60%. You know, yeah. we're doing, we're doing better. And so I, I'm, you know, I just wish that, um, I think what it speaks to is just how, if that many of physicians are really not um, physically displaying that physique that just looks healthy, if you will, you know, it's just all perceptions. Sure. That's what we're talking mm -hmm. about. It's all perceptions. Then, you know, that that self-confidence is down that ability to speak on health and nutrition is going to be down and so it's kind of more of just an explanation of why it might be an issue in some clinical settings is if that you know we're having 25 percent of physicians not have not look like they're walking the talk i think we can almost guarantee a lot of those people are not gonna either address it because they feel insecure given that they're maybe not displaying what they're talking going to speak about or maybe that they just don't have the skills either. Um, and so it's, it's unfortunate that we, you know, have not as physicians been able to make sure we're equipping everyone with the same um, resources, but, um, you know, ho hopefully we'll get to a place in the education system, I would hope, where we kind of even the playing fields, you know, just given the, the resources we have going through such, you know, expensive medical training. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, no, I love that, Simone. And as, as you know, as I'm wrapping up my training and, and kind of starting fellowships soon, I've been putting a lot of thought into how I want my future practice to be, right? Especially as as I'm evaluating mm -hmm. different fellowship programs. And and you talked a little bit about, you know, what some of the barriers are and what you think the optimal type of model will be. And and so that kind of gives me a sense mm -hmm. of what your vision is. And and you again, you and I mm -hmm. have talked about this offline, but. I'd be, I'd be curious. Yeah. And I think some of the people, like I said, we, it can be challenging. So, so why don't, how are you practicing like this now? Like mm -hmm. how, what are you incorporating for your patients to kind of help them with that healthy lifestyle, especially some of those challenging ones? Is there anything that you're doing quote unquote unconventional right now? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, we have to set, um, make it clear what setting I'm in first to kind of describe um, what options I have and what barriers I have, because every clinical setting will have those things, whether you're in an academic institution, a private institution, or a medium-sized group, you're going to have to work with the good and the bad there. And so my setting right now, I would, con I would consider a small independent hospital. It's important to identify that we're because of that, there's going to be um, a lot of freedoms and some limited resources. Um, so in my setting, I don't have uh, a psychologist in my clinic, which would be ideal. Um, get, that's what I consider comprehensive uh, pain management, comprehensive well-being management uh, in, in my practice. I don't have a psychologist in house or in my hospital, so that's a, a referral out. That's one more opportunity for my patient to fall through the cracks through that referral pattern. Um, I do have an excellent set of therapists and we could get into, you know, a slew of 
the techniques that they offer, but they offer all the things that I'm looking for in terms of the interventions, some of them more gentle, some of them more um, advanced and towards the athletic level, which is important to have a breadth. And so I can implement that comprehensive aspect of things. We don't have a nutritionist on hand. Um, so that's not something that I can refer to in house. Again, another opportunity for that to be lost. And so, you know, what you can do, and this is kind of something they teach kind of in health coaching, they teach how even family, family physicians can implement a quick like three minute behavior modification. That's kind of the direction we need to be going because even me, some of the patients I see, I mean, I'm a spine specialist. So some of the patients I'm seeing might have three or four complicated spine problems that if you're trying to do that in a new patient visit and I'm reading records because I'm their fourth, you know, opinion and they've had four surgeries and all this stuff. I mean, and they're overweight. Simone, even that loves this stuff, there's no way I can even add in a little a dabble of, oh, tell me a little bit about what your vision of optimal health looks like to you. You know, like we don't, we can't even go there. So what I tend to do is I am flexible and willing to go there when uh, the patient is a little bit more simple and not a complex spine patient. And, oh, oh, it came up. Oh, it came up. It's so funny. I think this is okay to bring up because there's nothing specific about the patient. Today, the patient's talking me through the things that make their pain worse. And I'm thinking that they likely have, it's a, it's a classic good spine case where somebody's calling it, you know, cervical radiculopathy, you know, if you're a PM&R person, you quickly identify that people can have shoulder impingement and carpal tunnel syndrome, and people that don't talk to them long enough realize that it, they actually have no cervical radiculopathy. So that's kind of what's hap happening here, is the problem is isolated to two different locations. Oh, what makes it worse? Well, when I'm lifting up, when I'm holding my phone, when I'm a driving wheel, when I'm driving at the wheel, when I, you know, pick up my cigarette. What, what, what? When you pick up your cigarette? What did you say? You know, and so we kind of go there for a second you know and you know the guy laughs and he's like oh and I was like no hey you brought it up you clearly want to talk about your smoking today I was like, that's fantastic mm -hmm. oh that's fantastic so tell me a little bit about that and you know even for the people they teach you you know for people that are in the pre-contemplation phase which is they're not ready to quit at all it, you know what they teach you in health coaching is you still always address this is why it's medically you know, wrong, or these are the things, these are the bad things it's doing for you. You always, even in pre-contemplation phase, you make sure it's your job to highlight this is what's wrong. In my field, I don't, I mean, I care about their lungs, but I talk about the fact that we know that people that smoke have way worse pain scores and disabilities, um, disability scores than those that don't. I mean, on all the studies, they always, they always take out confounding for smoking because it's astronomical how horrible those people do with pain management. And so that's the, the angle I come from and said, man, you're going on and on about your pain. And I said, but you haven't really changed the one thing that we know makes pain worse in all my patients as it gets the smoking thing. And I said, I know, I know, you know, and it sounds like you've talked about this with your PCP, but I'm going to just tell you one more thing. If there's something you want to do about your pain, I'm telling you, there's one more thing you're not working on at all. And I just got to let you know, just factual, that's my job, factually, your pain is going to be worse as long as you continue to smoke. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And, you know, you kind of continue to hear out where the patient's at and what they want to do with that. But I think that that's a great example of that patient had a, I wouldn't call him the simplest patient because I think I ended up giving him three or four problems by the end of the visit. But um, in terms of his history and there wasn't an imaging review, there was no history of surgeries, there was an opportunity to spend five minutes 
on one thing I know that's going to improve this guy's quality of life. And I don't mind doing that. I think you have to have, first of all, I, I you know, when you work in a field of pain, people tend to be, you, you got to have a certain personality. Um, you got to know how to deal with a lot of situations. So you got to be willing to just kind of go there. You can't be a timid person and kind of confront people on these unhealthy behaviors. I think sometimes people are scared to confront them and say, hey, do you know that your weight is affecting X? Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I've had several people say they didn't know blah, blah. Or my, my physician never told me that the weight would actually help with this problem. Or I never knew that about the smoking problem. That's one thing we know is that patients aren't being told enough. They might be documented in the notes so they can bill a certain way, but you've, you actually have to vocalize your what you know factually about the patient in some way because that is what gets the patient to at least switch to the contemplation phase at some point. It's going to be their own accord, but if the physicians aren't bringing up an opportunity for change in a way that objectively helps their health and isn't attacking them as a person, then I don't think that we're ever going to really knock, you know, we're going to have less of a chance of that person kind of seeing that as an opportunity for change for themselves. Yeah, that's so amazing. There's, there's so much to unpack there. And, you know, some of the, what I got mm -hmm. is obviously there's, there's a couple of layers, right. To the limitations. And I think you started off talking about how with the staffing that there's some limitations, you know, the appropriate personnel, the appropriate team members, right. And I'm mm. the sports guy. So I'll talk about, you got to have the right teammates to be able to, <laughs> to you know, success. Right. But then, you know, yeah. more the focus that all three of us are doing, I think a lot of us can do is, again, having those difficult conversations with the patient, educating ourselves and the patients. Do you think that, like, if today you were czar of that hospital, you, you're the leader of the hospital, and you're like, <laughs> I've got all the money, and I, I need to make, not all the money, but you've got some money, and you can make one change. Either you can make the change for the personnel, right? Or you can, mm -hmm. or you can keep providing that education and attack it the way you're attacking. Like, which one do you think would pay more mm. dividends? Because to me, it seems like you're doing the latter. And I think I do the same thing because I, I mean, I'm in the sense you control the, you control what you can control. And then, you, you know, the other That's things right. you kind of hope like, you know, that people smarter than you will figure it out. Um, is that, is that no. kind of the way you're approaching it or? Yeah, you always work when you're confines. I mean, I'm even doing things, you know, I think, there's a little things like the patient telling me today, you got to listen. I mean, you got to listen. And when people tell you, especially with pain medications, I think this happens a ton. Um, okay. So how are you taking that? Well, I mean, you see it. No, no, no. I said, no offense. I just always ask my patients how they're taking. I know how it's written. I, you're right. I can read the computer. I'm asking how you're taking the medication. Oh, well, you know, I might take it once. Da, 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 da. That's information. Your patient's not getting better because they're not taking the medication. You don't need to increase it. You don't need to change the medicine. You don't need to get an MRI. You need to figure out a way for compliance or you need to figure out what are the barriers to that. So a good example today, you listen to the, the patient. Oh, well, whatever. Let's not get into details. There, there's issues with compliance due to his schedule. Well, the medications they're on are something that easily can be converted. I can do the gabapentin or the neuropathic pain agent you know, once at night, you know, it's ideal to split it, but this guy is getting half the dose because I just can't take it twice a day. All right, man, we're just going to do it all at night, right? It's not the best, but we're getting closer. Anti-inflammatory, you can put them on the longer acting one versus that. That's simple stuff. I'm not talking about anything that, you know, this high education taught me. This is just common sense, right? And so I think 
that's working within your system and at the very simplest level. You're just listening to what the patient's issues are. Almost always, the reason the patient is not progressing almost always has nothing to do with the system. There's a, there's a few times <laughs> that the system is really holding, and, and what we do, there's a, a few times that the system's holding, oh, I can't get this advanced study, you know, I get, we got insurance issues and things like that. But in terms of, you know, a lot of the barriers, I think a lot of them have to do with listening to why your patient's not progressing and seeing what is in your realm of control like you're talking about. I think there's a lot of times that you have so much work you can do on the behavior level that even if you never get that MRI, that person's still probably going to get better, man. I mean, like outside of, you know, catastrophic neurological deficits, right? Um, but yeah, to, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like we got we to gotta work at our level. There's so much you can do unless you're bizarre. Yeah, I think I think you honestly nailed it, Simone. I mean, there is so much that we can do, but I think oftentimes as us physicians, we actually just place limitations on ourselves, right? But you, you're mm -hmm. really big into listening. You're really big into growing. And I think, you know, throughout this podcast right here, this episode, um, the one thing I've learned, I think all too, is how much you're on a quest for knowledge, right? With certifications, um, not only mm -hmm. to help your patients, but also that so that you can grow. So my question here mm -hmm. is what what are your next steps? Are there any more certificates mm. you have in mind? Any more training? <laughs> so much pressure. I just finished the last <laughs> test. Oh my God. I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a great question. So right now what I'm going to do is focus on really implementing uh, the skill sets. Um, it took a lot of work to finally get to this place where these things are, are going to be in a place where the credibility is there. You know, we all know knowledge is one thing, but credibility is huge. And so I'm going to pause on, you know, continuing to get more certifications and work on the implementation phase. And so what mm -hmm. I'm focusing on now is really reading, you know, about how do you build for this? How do you structure this? You know, what are um, best practices of places that are implementing practices where, that I envision? Where's health, the health coaching construct? You know, there's things out there that can help me implement things on a functional level and I think that's where we're really at at this point. I think I'm definitely not, definitely not the smartest person at what I do, but there's enough knowledge um, to get us rolling here where now it's about implementing the, the information and bringing the skills to the patients, you know, bringing mm -hmm. the resources to them. And I think that's where I want to spend most of my time at this point is, is growing in that aspect of things. Absolutely. I love that. Right. We can read as much as we want, but if we don't implement it, then what mm -hmm. exact impact are we making? Right. We, we can be on a quest mm -hmm. for knowledge as much as we want, but mm -hmm. exactly comes down to action. Love That's it. Right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So as we come to the near, uh, near end now of this, uh, episode, I just, I just want to ask a fun question. So okay. if there was only, if there was only one supplement you could take, what would it be and why? This is all oh. him, by the way. I have nothing to do with this. Because <laughs> I think really? this is gonna, I have nothing to do with this. I'm throwing him under the bus. <laughs> this is all this is, this is funny. So I think it's no, I think it's no quite no, uh, no hesitation on my part to say that I'm not a big fan of a lot of the supplements um, out there. A lot of mm -hmm. co supplement companies. Right. There's a few that I think that are, you know, reliable. Glutamine in particular stands out as something that has been found to be, you know, beneficial um, in more respects even than just muscle recovery. And I know, I guess if I had to hang on to some crappy supplement, I guess it would be glutamine. 
Um, but I don't know. I mean, beta alanine research, I, I think, has been pretty decent as well. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see what else comes out about beta alanine. Um, but I would say really glutamine, and it's just because if I had to pick it, it, there's a little crossover, I think, with some cardiac stuff as well as with the muscular um, muscular function and recovery. And so I think if we're kind of going bang for buck and cost-wise and the fact that people don't really just try to, you know, I'm huge, hugely against, you know, these compounds. Um, it's just nice. I mean, it's just a simple, it's a simple, it's a simple supplement. And I think you can't go wrong with something like glutamine. It's funny. I, I, I was, I was kind of hoping you would take the easy answer and say caffeine. Technically caffeine's a supplement. Oh yeah. I do love caffeine. I, really I've seen you, one. I've seen you drink your coffee. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do love caffeine. And I, I can't remember if I listed that in, in my podcast, but I tell clients about it and our people will, uh, will talk to me about their pre-workout and I'm like, man, throw it away. You know, brew yourself yeah. some coffee on the way to the gym. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Co- I think you, I think you you picked the best one actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, probably the most researched uh, supplement out there. I mean, I, I know creatine, I think you've think talk, you've talked about a little bit about that as well, but yeah, some of the ones that you mm-hmm. mentioned, uh, but we'll, that's, that's like a whole another world. We could be here for hours. Um, but Simone, this has been, absolutely, I know. <laughs> this I has can't. been so much fun. It's been absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're literally weathering the storm right now um not in just in, in, in <laughs> difficult patients but coming to us in the middle of a hurricane so we definitely appreciate that and i think we kind of lost you there for a second somewhere in the middle uh but uh but we appreciate that and, and i know how Uh-oh. to find you but but what's going to happen is people are going to listen to this and they're going to be like yeah, oh definitely. man I, I heard these two clowns but they were talking yeah. to somebody really cool dr <laughs> simon maven and, and they're going to want some more so how do they find you how do people find you yeah well, thanks so much, guys. Again, thanks so much for having me and your kind words and compliments. I, you know, I, I definitely don't see myself above or better than anyone. I'm just doing my little part and you guys are bringing something amazing here to the podcast world. And I appreciate you guys, you know, just honoring little old me to come and join you guys tonight. Um, if anyone does want to reach out to me and just, you know, ask questions or bash some of my ideas, you can do that. I think that's fun. Um, you just, you can email me if you want, um, simone.maben at gmail.com. Simone Maben is the easiest way to find me on, uh, IG, Simone Maben. E- my website that we've re- re- been revamping with all this cool stuff, that's going to be dropping, um, here in the next few weeks as well. And so that'll be simonemaben.com. Really can't go wrong with the Simone Maben. And so, uh, my podcast, Healthy 365 on all platforms, including Anchored and, um, Apple Podcasts, really anywhere you can find it. So tune in and let me know what you guys think. Absolutely. And we're going to make sure we link uh, to your podcast in our show notes as well. Again, Simone, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. You guys have a good night and thanks for hosting. Absolutely. Well, guys, that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Medicine Redefined, but just as a reminder, everything in this podcast is for general information only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing any medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in the podcast does not represent the views of our employers. So if you liked it, please make sure to subscribe and share it with all your loved ones or anybody you know who might benefit from this. Until next time.